0: I've said on several occasions that I learned every life principle by being involved in sports, and it wasn't until I began to read scripture that I began to realize that there really is a lot that you can learn, actually, from any area of life, and I think that's been true throughout time. Ancient Roman world, athletic competition was very prominent put as much effort into that area as we do in our culture. Those are just the remains of the seating of Circus Maximus, which was kind of like a stadium, except it was very long for chariot races and other type competitions. And we've looked at a lot of other photographs of ancient Rome just to get us into the context and give us a little bit of a feel for what Paul and others in the first century saw and were influenced by. So, just a a couple of things to remind us there. In the text, we're looking at the very beginning of the book of Romans, and last time I gave an introduction to the whole book. There's 17 verses of introduction. This is the longest introduction of all of Paul's letters, so I've given it its own division by itself. And we'll spend plenty of time in there, obviously. There are actually two parts to this introduction. There's a formal introduction. I gave you an introduction to it. And I said that I probably would not have an introduction to the Book of Romans for the whole semester. And then I took that back last week. (laughs) I rescinded it because we'll probably spend most of the semester in Paul's introduction to the book. So he has a formal introduction, and we looked at the entire introduction because it's just one sentence, and if you've been a part of this class before, you notice that we go sentence by sentence, because grammatically that's, by definition, a unit of thought, so if you want to capture the whole thought, you want to look at the whole sentence, and... Even though we break down sentences into their parts, if you don't see the whole thing, sometimes you can misinterpret parts. And that's true of any look at Scripture. So we want to be careful. And I apologize again for the small font. But in order to get it all on one slide, I guess I could put it on two slides. But then you lose something. So all of the seven verses... One sentence, and it's not unusual not to have a verb. I'm not going to go totally over it again just to give you the highlights of it. But in Greek, if a verb is understood, sometimes it's omitted. And if you read some of the rest of Paul's introductions, usually very short, one verse, sometimes two verses, you'll notice that most of them doesn't include a verb as well. So it's pretty typical Paul, pretty typical Greek. It's not a problem, it's just assumed. So you supply a verb, and this is not the blue is not the inspired necessarily. It's there's no verb, but he's saying something. Paul, and then he gives a description of many things in there. And basically the sentence, the essence of it, Paul sending or wishing or desiring something to all who are beloved of God in Rome called the saints. And what he wants to send is grace and peace, or bestow, or wish upon them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the heart of the sentence. Now, everything else kind of precedes that, and in that, he describes himself, and on your outline sheet, I've called that, that's, and by the way, this is the reason I give you all of the verses on one outline sheet, because it's just one sentence, and it's one thought, if you will, with a lot of little parts. So in describing himself, I call it the messenger, who is Paul, that's verse 1, and then after discussing himself in three parts, set apart for the gospel of God, and once he talks about the gospel, he has to expand upon it, that's the focus of the book of Romans, is the gospel message in all of its aspects in terms of how it relates to Jew and Gentile. So every aspect somehow relating to the gospel. So now he has to expand that. And that gospel, in verse 2, he promised beforehand through his, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he expands that. That's the message. That's the essence of what he's dealing with in terms of the whole book. So he has to give us a little outline of that message in this sentence. So he talks about the gospel, promised beforehand, verse 2, and the main message within the gospel is his son. So once he talks about his son, he can't leave that alone. He has to expand upon that concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And I think that focuses in on his humanity, his messiahship, And and then he has to, can't leave out, deity, verse 4, who is declared the Son of God. In other words, he has all of the the nature, the characteristics of God himself. Son of God, with power, declared with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And if you haven't figured out who it is, he makes it clear, Jesus Christ our Lord. But notice it's a comma, so the thing keeps going on and on. Once he describes himself, the messenger, then he jumps to the message, and he can't leave out his mission. So, the next part, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So, he's the instrument of this mission. He received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. That's the mission. That's what he was called to do. This is where this gospel is going out. And in the first century, the main audience that Paul had were primarily Gentiles, including the Romans, which we'll get to in a moment here. So he's trying to bring about, the mission is to bring about the obedience of faith among Gentiles, and ultimately it's for his name's sake. In other words, ultimately the mission is for his glory. And then beginning in verse 6, it include, the mission includes the Roman recipients, that's verse 6 among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So there's the mission. And then verse 7, he's got to talk about who this is all addressed to or who he has the design for. So if you want to include a verb, sent to, send to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And I call that the membership in order just to keep the alliteration going there. So in the title, when I say messenger, message, mission, and more, it includes the... The membership at Rome, and then he has the uh, what I call the munificence. Had to kind of stretch my alliteration there.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Good observation. So that means a blessing or something that is given to someone, and this is what he is sending: grace and peace. So that's the whole context. That's the whole. Passage from 1 to 7, and then last time we started by looking at verse 1, so we have the formal introduction, and we focused on the messenger. Didn't quite complete verse 1. Part of that, we spent 20 minutes on that overview of the first seven verses. So we'll complete verse 1, and in the messenger we saw the first description that Paul gives. He's a doulos of Christ. So we looked carefully at that word, and he starts describing himself from the most humble position. Remember, this is the lowest of slaves in the first century. There were different kinds of slaves, different classes of slaves, a whole spectrum of importance in terms of slaves. And we described kind of what slavery was like in the first century. It was like an employee, if you will, an employer-employee relationship. And we also concluded by saying that we, ourselves, are described as doulas. And this should be the attitude that we have, an attitude of humility, an attitude of availability, an attitude of we belong to someone else. So we spent some time on that. And then he goes to the other end of the spectrum and describes his most elevated position as an apostle. So you can assume that he's given us kind of the spectrum from the most humble position, that would be the attitude, all the way to that high position of apostleship. And we concluded by looking at what an apostle does. They essentially are church planters in the first century. And if the gift continues today, then the gift of apostleship would include the full Complement of gifts that a person would need in order to establish churches, and some missionaries, I would think, would have those gifts to be able to establish churches where there are none in existence in foreign or distant places. So called an apostle. If the gift occurs today, it's not an office, I think that ceased in the first century, we talked about that, but if it's giftedness, it's function. In other words, functioning as, with, as an apostle, with the abilities that are given through spiritual gifting. And that left us with the, the last description that he gives in verse 1. Set apart. He's a set-apart messenger. And the little phrase there is set apart for the gospel of God. And the word there, we are set apart as well. But essentially, just... The idea here is, I believe, every believer is set apart, in fact, I think God set us apart before eternity passed. In other words, he knows everything that's going to take place in history. He's omniscient. He knows the entire plan that he has set forth, and he has a plan, and we fit into that plan and I think the doctrine of election is really the concept that God has already in eternity past set us apart for a particular function in the implementing of this great plan. When we trust in him, we come into a relationship where now we can be utilized to fulfill that, that high calling. And in a sense, the moment we trust, we are set apart... Even though I think it begins in eternity past, we are set apart to begin to realize and to prepare. In other words, we grow in order to understand that we have a place and a part. And when we have a realization of that, now we can begin functioning in that broad plan of God through giftedness, through ministry that God has granted to us. And I think this is something that every true believer past. We are all set apart. We'll develop that later. But in this case, Paul specifically, now most people would admit and think, well, church leaders or apostles or prominent believers, obviously they're set apart. Well, that's true of them, but it's also true of us. And our ministry is no more or no less important than perhaps that of a Paul or a John or another figure in in the in, in Biblical account. Mary Lynn.
1: I say that from our perspective, we actually have no clue as to the importance of the world that the Lord is calling us to. He is the only one who can judge. And we look at Billy Brands and blah, right. blah, blah, and we say, oh, but but we don't see it from God's perspective. Exactly. And so we have no standard, no way to measure the impact of a single life Exactly. before Him. Exactly. And He's the only one who's qualified to judge that.
0: Absolutely. But we need to have the realization that we are just as much set apart as the Apostle Paul. But in this context, he's identifying himself or describing himself as one set apart. And his particular mission, or setting apart, includes the gospel of God. And then, as you will see, he'll expand that and tell us more about that gospel. And obviously, if you read the book of Acts, Paul was used as he was obedient in a very mighty way to establish many, many churches in the first century Somewhat directly, but also indirectly, in that he discipled people that went out and established other churches. In fact, Paul at Ephesus, if you remember from the book of Acts, Paul was very influential in that church, and that church, even though we attribute much of the ministry or the initial ministry to Paul at Ephesus, there are little hints in book of Acts and elsewhere, that that church established churches in the rest of that Asia Minor region. And the seven churches of the book of Revelation, and some that are not even mentioned, were the product of the ministry at Ephesus that Paul probably did not found, but he had his hand in it as he discipled those that went out. So you can list all of them. What are they? Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, Sardis. There's another one in there. Laodicea, but there's a seventh. Mm -hmm. Which one did I miss? Oh, Ephesus. (laughs) Oh yeah, sorry about that. But also Hierapolis, which was close to Laodicea, and also close to Laodicea. Colossae, all those churches would in fact have been the product of Paul's ministry at Ephesus. And like Mary Lee pointed out, those people that are unknown, that may have even had the office of apostleship, left Ephesus, went to these communities and founded churches there. And they are just as important. So he set apart for the gospel of God, and not only in Asia Minor, but uh, obviously he went to Philippi. Remember, he founded the church there, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth, and elsewhere, so God used him in a mighty way, set apart for the gospel of God. So this setting apart idea is part of Paul's ministry. If you look at the word to set apart, aphorizo kind of has uh, different meanings. It can be used in an everyday sense. Remember, I told you that every theological word comes out of the culture. They're not special. There's no special language coming down in golden tablets from God, if you will. All theological terms come from the culture, so every one of them, you better understand them if you understand how they were used in their everyday context. And in an everyday context, they just had the idea of separating something out. You could just physically separate something out, or you could even even in the secular sense, separate something in a spiritual sense, or a non-literal sense in a more metaphorical sense. Mm -hmm. For example, Galatians 2.12. Let's look at just one of them. Mm -hmm. Who wants to take a look at that? Somebody else look up Matthew 13.49. Jenny, you got the first one? Who's got the second one? one? Matthew 13.49. And since we're doing it, somebody else look up Acts 13. All right, Connie, get Acts 13. You got the Matthew 1, David? Galatians 2, 12. Now, this is in just an ordinary, everyday sense of separating something out. And by the way, when it was used in an everyday sense, you know, all you women, you have special dishes that you keep in a special cabinet. And you only bring them out on special occasions. You could say that those dishes are set apart for those particular special occasions. That's the everyday way of using it. Got it? Got Galatians 2.12? Well, prior to the
1: coming of certain men to eat with the Gentiles, and to draw and hold
0: Okay. He was just setting himself apart from them. The word is used in that context. In other words, moving away from a certain environment or a certain situation. And it's referring to Peter in that. And it's not complimentary in this context. has nothing to do necessarily with this spiritual idea of being set apart. You get that? And maybe my illustration illustrates it perhaps better than the passage I selected there. To separate in judgment. It's used in that sense in the New Testament. 13.49... So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall shall come forth and sever the wicked from the unjust. Separate out. The word aphorizo is used in that context. In the ultimate judgment, and by the way, there's a couple of other passages that refer to that same event. The Matthew 13, it's in a parable, but the parable is talking about final judgment. And there's a separating out. In fact, it's used in the Matthew 24 passage, the Olivet Discourse that we looked at. And it's separating sheep and goats, Matthew 25. Remember that passage? We looked at it. And it's taking some, putting them in one category, taking others, putting them in a different category, and in this case, it deals with eternal destiny. So the word is used in that sense. Now, to set apart for a particular purpose, and particularly... A purpose that God has in mind, a representative passage besides the one we're looking at in Romans 1 is Acts 13 2. You got that one, Connie? As they
1: ministered to the Holy Spirit said, Now me, Barnabas, for the work to go.
0: Okay, separate unto me. In other words, at the church at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were separated out for a particular purpose. And that was the first missionary journey. So they're. Separated for a particular and specific <laughs> task, a mission.
1: Jim. Well, Tom, we are um, right. The side of the point that labor, uh, is Yes. Absolutely. Only
0: place for God work. Absolutely. So I
1: think it points out God's word.
0: Yes. In order that people can understand what perhaps their calling might be exactly. That's why we take pains here to try to explain in some detail the Word of God. That's the foundation for finding the will of God in order to fulfill what God has called us to do. Very good. Okay, so that's that word that he uses. And specific to Paul, in Acts 13.2, this is the beginning of many missionary journeys. There's three that are recorded in the book of Acts, and there's probably at least a fourth, if not more, after that, that are alluded to in the so-called pastoral epistles. I call them so-called because I think they're misnamed, and you know why, because of my heretical ecclesiology. Okay, okay. so the application we drew last time, the idea that we are bond slaves, we should apply that, I think, at least in uh, an attitude of availability, ready to perform whatever task our Lord has for us. And the idea of obedience, I think, is part of that. Secondly, just as Paul had everything that he needed to function at at a high level as an apostle, he was gifted with the gift of apostleship and also the office of apostleship. Even though we do not have that office, we can apply that principle in that God has given us everything and equipped us with everything that we need in order to fulfill what he has called us to do. And for us, uh, we have spiritual gifts, and all that know Jesus Christ have at least one, and in some cases one that's prominent, with several others that support that prominent one. And we're, we're unique. We're, we're, we're like a fingerprint. We are all different. And we have different gifts, different combinations, different ministries, how God's going to use that. And that includes women. And women, in some cases, have the gift of teaching. And God has given them an environment where they can teach. And in fact, I believe women have the gift of pastor. Heretical, right? (laughs) The gift, not position. In fact, in churches that I've observed, and one particularly one that I've been involved in, women probably were more effective as shepherds than the men, because they had that gift. They were gifted in that area, because women have a nurturing and a shepherding kind of nature almost in general. And I think God gifts, gives that gift to women. That doesn't mean they are to apply for positions in churches, but... That, that's the difference between giftedness and position. So you're
1: saying that you can exercise your gift whether or not you should. At,
0: most people don't have a position. In fact, most of us in the body of Christ have no position whatsoever, but have giftedness and should function. And we should prioritize, thirdly, we can apply this one, prioritize that ministry in the area where God has set us apart to perform particular tasks, particular missions, particular areas of ministry. So we drew first two last week, and we can draw this third one this week. Bill,
1: can we say a little to that, that on the gift? Yes, it's so important to remember the spiritual gift. The manifestation of the whole. spiritual gift is not something that we can just do with. Spiritual exactly. The chooses to us.
0: Exactly. And
1: he's the one that gets the priority.
0: Absolutely. Very good. So, let the Holy Spirit prioritize your ministry. A little modification. Good. But the fact is, everyone that knows Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift, and God has already, I think in eternity past, set each and every one of us apart to be able to, to fulfill what he is calling to fulfill that part that he has in his overall development of not only the body of Christ, but the outworking of all of history.
1: And, kind of a
0: good passage to kind of summarize those three, since we're talking about Paul in this context. Paul is an example that you and I can follow. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be imitators of me, is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Just as I also am of Christ. And as Bill is pointing out, the assumption there is in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are commanded to do as Paul did, not that we are apostles necessarily, not that we have that gift, but that we do have gifts, we are to exercise them. We should have the same attitude Paul had as bondservants available to exercise those gifts in whatever situation God brings. So that's the messenger, that's verse 1. In verse 2 now he's going to focus 2 through 4 on the message prioritizing the message that he delivered as messenger. And verse 2 deals with this message is not unique to Paul. In other words it's promised in the Old Testament so we might say there's a promise there verse 2. So verse 1 Paul bond servant of Jesus Christ called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God Verse 2, which, remember, he can't, once he talks about the gospel, he can't leave it alone. He can't move on to the verb in the sentence. He has to expand upon that because this is an introduction. This gospel, which he, who's the he? God, gospel of God, which he, the nearest antecedent, he promised beforehand through his prophets. In fact, I'll even mention ahead of time. Uh, you might notice
1: Paul is
0: always Trinitarian, particularly in passages of importance like this one. So we have the Father, and then he's focusing on the Son later, and then he mentions the Holy Spirit. He's always Trinitarian. First of all, he's going to focus on the Father, which he, the Father, promised beforehand, ultimately revelation, ultimately the plan that God has effected in the eternity past, has been announced beforehand, and in this case, promised beforehand through his prophets. And as Jim is emphasizing, where do you find that? This is why it's important to study the Scriptures, because that's where you find these promises. And the thing to notice here, this gospel message is not New Testament. The gospel message began with Adam and Eve. All right? It took a different form, but every human being has been confronted, every human being on the face of the earth that has ever existed has been confronted with the gospel message. So it begins in Genesis 3.15. It's called, what is that called? Those of you that have, remember, starts with a P, prot, prot, evangelium. Remember that?
1: No, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> What's word? What's the word? <laughs> first, time ever heard
0: of first time you ever heard of that? It's Latin. First announcement of the gospel. Now, theologians call it that. 315, Pro Evangelium. All right, you learned a new word. So, today wasn't a waste. You learned at least one new word. Is
1: it Scrabble? Pardon me? Can you use it in Scrabble? Yes.
0: Very definitely. You can also use it in uh, the culture. The first announcement of the gospel is Genesis 315. It's called that. Because you have the gospel message there. Through the woman is going to come a seed. Remember, the main emphasis of the gospel that Paul's going to develop It is his son. That looks forward to the coming of a particular descendant of Eve. And that line is traced throughout the whole Old Testament. And then in Galatians tells us, chapter 4, in the fullness of time... That son came from a woman, Genesis 3.15, and that son is Jesus Christ. So the gospel starts all the way immediately after the fall of man. And now in the mind of God, it's eternal, but it's revealed after the first sin of Adam and Eve. So it's promised beforehand through his prophets. So you can find it throughout the Old Testament. Now, when you think of prophets in the Bible, don't just think of the Isaiahs. And don't just think of predictive prophecy. In fact, predictive prophecy is a minor part of the message of prophets. So, when we are speaking of prophets, when when you're thinking of prophets, think in terms of a broader concept. And I think it's used in this broader concept here it would include moses in fact moses makes it clear that he is a prophet but it would include the writers of joshua it would include the writers of first and second samuel those are historical books but biblically, a prophet is a broader concept than simply the isaiahs the daniels the ezekiels
1: how would you do that? Uh, first My understanding is one group
0: Yes. Yeah, that's the essence of a prophet. Uh, Bill, and then Jim.
1: And Bruce Wilkinson gave a very simple definition of that. He said, the function of a prophet is to bring God to man. The function of a priest is to bring man to God.
0: That's good. That's good. Very good. Jim? Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think the, the
1: basic form.
0: Yes. But first, he receives God's revelation. The prophet received God's revelation. And there are what are called historical prophets who received revelation. Now, they took historical events, but they needed it put into a package. So they received revelation concerning how God is using that those historical events, and they record the history and uh, by revelation. So all of Scripture is the product of prophets in that broad sense. And I think he's using it in Romans in that broad sense. Prophets then proclaimed it after they received it. They proclaimed it. And thus, the Isaiahs and the Malachis, etc., they proclaimed it in their culture. And there's much prophecy that we don't have a record of. They would have proclaimed it in the time in which they lived. But they also inscripturated some of it. And that's what we have. That's the Old Testament in the Holy Scriptures. Make sense? This is a prophet. And, obviously, it included, what I already mentioned, the writers of history. Like Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings. They are historical prophets. How does that work? Well, inspiration. In other words, what Joshua, probably wrote Joshua, what he recorded, is superintended by the Holy Spirit. And he didn't leave out a word of what the Holy Spirit intended, nor did he add more than the Holy Spirit intended. It's superintended, and that is part of the revelation that came to him. Now, he may have done that not even consciously. The book of Romans is kind of an example. Paul wrote down, he was a scholar, he drew from his understanding of the Old Testament, and he writes... The book of Romans. You
1: can think of it, you
0: know, as history from the perspective. Yeah, history from God's perspective. From God's interpretation. Right. All right, Jenny? You are functioning like a prophet. You may not be one or not even gifted, but you are proclaiming it. You're you're functioning like a prophet.
1: So in the stories of
0: And there is a gift of prophecy, by the way. Sorry about that, Dave. Joshua <laughs> and Samuel and thanks to the people who are experiencing God's divine presence in their lives, there's no way that, you know, they're saying, yeah, oh, that's a good idea, let's circle the city seven times. You know, this is stuff that is absolutely things like Yes. Connie. you am
1: interested in, fact, last night, reading in Job, of Revelation, where he says, Job is implying, he says, Surely even now my witness... Is Mm-hmm. And um, he says,
0: oh, that one might, a man with God, is a man who's testament. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, Old Testament, well, you could include New Testament prophets. In fact, all prophets, but I think what's referenced here are the prophets of old, in Paul's description here, received God's revelation. And it didn't necessarily come in a vision form. In some cases, it may have just come through the thought processes that God built into that prophet, taking observations of the culture in which he lived in, revelation. In some cases, it was dictated. So you have the whole spectrum of how God revealed his revelation. Then they proclaimed it, and oftentimes in a live audience, in some cases they inscripturated it, that's the Old Testament, that's the scriptures, and includes writers of history. So when he says the gospel, which he promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, that's what he's talking about. And it's through his prophets. We saw the through his prophets. So in Scripture, it would include things like even in the book of Romans. What does Paul say? When he's talking about his promise beforehand, what does 321 say? Who's got that one? Romans 321. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is in the name the law under its tested. The law and the prophets testify to what? Of God. God, The righteousness of God. That's an important element of the gospel. Who God is. The nature of God. And it's testified by the law and the prophets. So he's telling us over and over. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Romans. Much of what he has in the book of Romans is not unique. It's revealed in the Old Testament. He's just bringing it together as a prophet. And now he's proclaiming it, and in fact it's inscripturated. Four, three. Who's got it? What does
1: the Scriptures say?
0: The Scriptures? What does the Scripture say?
1: Alright. Abraham, Abraham
0: was justified by the same faith, by the same justification as what Paul is proclaiming in Romans chapter 3 and 4. So this is not new. The Gospel is not a new message, not a New Testament message. So justification by faith is in the scriptures. We won't look up these because we are running out of time, but Messiah is clearly spelled out in Isaiah 53. And the work of Messiah is spelled out in Isaiah 53. A very specific prophet. The Abrahamic covenant is clearly spelled out in Genesis. Genesis beginning, it's promised in Genesis 12 made into a covenant in Genesis 15, and then it's reiterated in Genesis 17, and then reiterated to uh, Isaac, reiterated to Jacob. It's alluded to throughout the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant. And what does Paul tell us in Galatians 3, 8, and 9? We won't look it up, but you can write it down. And verse 14, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, at least in a partial way. Abrahamic covenant predicted... And it deals with the gospel. In the Galatians passage, it's talking about what Christ has done when he died on the cross. Partially fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. All of this is part of the Old Testament. It's not not new. And these are just examples. You could come up with a long list of others that are in the Old Testament. So that's the promise. And now he's going to focus in on the content. In other words, what is the main content of this gospel message? And we'll see this emphasized in the book of Romans. And we're gonna see three and four, and we'll start verse three and we'll stop there and pick it up next next week, Lord willing.
1: I think the emphasis
0: of verse three is his humanity. And just to jump ahead, the emphasis of verse four is his deity. So his humanity and his deity, in other words, that the complete picture of who Jesus Christ is, he is at the heart of the gospel message. We need to understand his part. In the gospel message. So, verse three, what is the gospel that is revealed beforehand by the prophets in, in the Scriptures? What is it concerned concerning His Son? That's the message. That's the heart of the message concerning His Son. And then He expands upon that: Who was born, a descendant of David? He's a descendant of Eve, and then the line is traced all the way to David. This is why in Matthew's Gospel, you have a genealogy, well, from Abraham to David and all the way to Jesus Christ. This is why in Luke's Gospel, it goes all the way to Eve, and you have a genealogy, so you see the line, and it goes through David, and then eventually Jesus Christ. The son is a descendant of David. Physically, he has the genetic material that came from David. He's fully man. So the son, and by the way, he has to be man because he has to be a man that dies for sin in our place. And he has to be a special man, a sinless one. Because if he had sin, he'd have to die for his own sin. And he couldn't die for our sin. If he's perfectly sinless, then he can die for our sin and be our substitute and take on all of the judgment that you and I deserve. So it concerns his son, and it's important that he be fully human, a descendant of David, in the line of the Davidic covenant, in the line of the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilling all that God had planned ahead of time in the Old Testament. So this is important. And notice, according to the flesh, in other words, physically, he had a physical body, he had all the temptations, he had all the characteristics that you and I have as human beings, fully human, 100%. So that's verse 3. And I just include fulfilling the Davidic covenant in our scriptures here. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I said Samuel is a prophet. Or the the product of a prophet, except First and Second Samuel. We don't know exactly who wrote that. It's Chapter Seven spells out the Davidic covenant. So Jesus Christ fulfills not only the Abrahamic but the Davidic covenants. It's all intertwined here. And let me just introduce this, and then we'll come back to it. So His humanity is anticipated in the prophets in the Old Testament, and then verse four. We'll develop this next week. His deity is announced or declared and who was declared the son of God. When you think of son in scripture, particularly the New Testament, it's conveying the idea as a son, just as you have children, you have sons and daughters, they have your skin color, they have your eyes, you know, maybe your wife's eyes and maybe you as husbands, they might have other characteristics, whatever it may be. They have your DNA. They have all that you are in humanity. They take on your characteristics, sometimes your mannerisms, sometimes your sin, unfortunately. So when you think of Son of God, that phrase has a connotation Jesus Christ has all of the characteristics of the Father. And ultimately, and especially, deity. He is fully God. 100% 100% man, 99% God? Nope. 100% God. And not 50-50, 100% both. And we'll develop that
1: <laughs> next
0: week. Who wants to close for us?
1: Before we do, could I give a little story to help illustrate this? Sure. The, when Ernie and I were taking perspectives on the world Christian movement, one of the speakers talked about uh, passing his final exam on Old Testament. And you've gone through and studied all the kings and prophets, had all that worked out. Went into the exam, and the professor said, Ladies and gentlemen, there is a stack of New Testaments at the back of the room. Mark anything that's new. Okay. <laughs> okay. And the point being, most everything in the New Testament is in the Old
0: Yes. Very good point. And that reflects the closing comment here. Today, more than ever, our culture needs a needs to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. The book of Romans is going to equip us to be able to do that. Most of you are already equipped, but it will hopefully sharpen us. Do you want to close for us? I I do. do. Father
1: God, we're just so grateful that you have revealed to us how your kingdom works, that you have opened up who you are, how you function, and how we are to relate to you. We are grateful. Thank you, Father, for calling Ray to Open up the Scriptures to us, and may we now take what you have revealed to us and pass that on. Would you use us as instruments of ministry throughout a very hurting world? We pray in Jesus'
0: name. Amen.